Good afternoon, everyone. Welcome to the Cato Institute. Uh, my name is Kelly Cobb. I'm the Senior Director of External Affairs here at Cato. Um, and you are at uh, what is poised to be a very interesting conversation on the future of Obamacare in the courts. Um, the title of this panel is uh, Helbig v. Sibelius. All of Obamacare hangs on the outcome. Uh, the case has the potential to not only nullify the mandate for some employers that they must offer insurance or pay a very large tax, but it could also relieve some taxpayers of the individual mandate requirement to purchase uh, individual insurance. The Affordable Care Act provides tax credits and subsidies for health insurance passed through state exchanges. Uh, those credits, however, trigger employer mandates to offer health insurance. And for some individuals who receive that tax credit, it actually reduces their cost enough to mean that according to the federal government, uh, that health insurance is affordable enough uh, such that they have to purchase uh, uh, health insurance under the ind individual mandate coverage requirements. Uh, under the exact language of the law, those tax credits and ensuing tax penalties on employers and individuals only apply in states that have created exchanges. Nevertheless, with two-thirds roughly of states having rejected or opted out or failed to create an exchange at this point, uh, the IRS has decided through a rule that uh, these tax credits and then ensuing penalties will apply to taxpayers and businesses through federal exchanges as well, essentially nationally. Uh, for taxpayers and three employers, are challenging this IRS ruling in Halbig v. Sibelius. And if they succeed, uh, they could halt billions of dollars in fines on millions of Americans and American businesses under Obamacare. Uh, before I introduce our panel today, uh, if you're on your mobile devices tweeting, we're using the hashtag pound Halbig, that's H-A-L-B-I-G. Uh, you can also, uh, at the end, we'll do some questions, Q&A. You can also tweet questions using that hashtag or to at Cato Events, which is our Twitter handle here at Cato. Um, on my immediate right, Michael Cannon is the Cato Institute's Director of Health Policy Studies. Previously, he was Domestic Policy Analyst for the Senate Republican Policy Committee, where he advised on health, education, labor, welfare, and the Second Amendment. Uh, he's the author of Replacing Obamacare and co-author of Healthy Competition, What's Holding Healthcare Back and How to Free It. He also recently released 50 Vetoes, How States Can Stop the Obama Healthcare Law, which touches on many of the ideas uh, that we're going to be discussing today. And he is also the uh, author, along with Jonathan Adler, of Taxation Without Representation, the Illegal IRS Rule to Expand Tax Credits, under PIPACA, which was uh, in the Health Matrix law, Journal of Law and Medicine. Uh, that's a more thorough, in-depth uh, conversation of what we're having today. Uh, beside him is Michael Carvin, who is the lead plaintiff attorney in Halbig v. Sibelius and is a partner at Jones Day Law Firm. Uh, Mike also argued against Obamacare's individual mandate before the Supreme Court last year. Uh, he focuses on constitutional, appellate, civil rights, and civil litigation against the federal government. In addition to challenging the Affordable Care Act, he has been at the center of numerous high-profile cases as one of the lead lawyers for George W. Bush following the 2000 recount in Florida, invalidating provisions in Sarbanes-Oxley, and limiting the ability for the Department of Justice to create majority-minority districts. Um, 
Rob Weiner, next to me, is uh, a partner at Arnold & Porter, but more relevant to our conversation today for the past couple of years. He served as Associate Deputy Attorney General at the Department of Justice, where he oversaw the defense of the Affordable Care Act, including at its arguments before the Supreme Court. He also served as Senior Counsel in the White House Counsel's Office under President Bill Clinton, where, as you can imagine, he dealt with a wide range of issues. And beside him is Simon Lazarus, a senior counsel at the Constitutional, Ability, or Constitutional Accountability Center, which is a public interest law firm, think tank, and action center. Prior to that, Cy was public policy counsel at the National Senior Citizens Law Center, associate director of President Jimmy Carter's White House domestic policy staff, and has practiced law firm at a couple, uh, at a couple practiced law at a couple firms in between those two stints. Uh, as one of the chief defenders of the Affordable Care Act, Sai has written extensively on the Constitution and health care, including for the American Constitution Society, and his work has appeared in numerous uh, outlets, including The Atlantic, Washington Post, Newsweek, Politico, and so on. Uh, more relevant to today, Sai has described Canada's own Michael Cannon's work as blinkered, a right-wing stratagem, and in-your-face preposterous. So as we dive deep into some technical and very complicated legal arguments today, Sai, I'm hoping you can provide us with some more entertaining sparks and language around that. So without further ado, uh, we'll do uh, about 10 minutes per panelist, and then we'll leave some time for question and answer, but Michael Cannon. Thank you, Kelly. Uh, thank you, Rob and Sai and Michael and all of you for coming here to jo join us at the Cato Institute, Institute today. And thank you to all of you who are watching us uh, streaming through the Cato website. So as Kelly mentioned, at the heart of this lawsuit, the controversy before us is whether the Patient Protection and Affordable Care Act or, uh, or the Affordable Care Act or the PPACA or the ACA or Obamacare or the Obama Health Law authorizes what it calls premium assistance tax credits uh, and what I'll probably refer to as subsidies uh, throughout the, the rest of this discussion in states that establish, only in states that establish their own health insurance exchanges or in states, in all states, regardless of whether or not they establish a health insurance exchange, regardless of whether they have their own exchange which they've established as 17, well, 16 states plus uh, the District of Columbia have done, or whether they have a federal fallback exchange that the law directs the Secretary of Health and Human Services to establish in a state that declines to establish its own. This is not a trivial question. The total cost, the total amount of money that the Obama health law plans to spend on these exchange-related subsidies is about $1.2 trillion over 10 years, according to the last CBO projection. In those 34 states, you've got two-thirds of the U.S. population that might be eligible for those subsidies. So in those 34 states, we're talking about two-thirds of that $1.2 trillion, $1 trillion or $800 billion that's at stake here. This is a big question. The IRS has issued a final rule stating that it will issue those subsidies in those 34 states. It will spend that $800 billion not just spend, but tax and borrow and spend that $800 billion in those 34 states. If the statute withholds, if, if that's contrary to the law, if the statute, in fact, withholds those subsidies from non-compliant states, 
Well, then, as various observers have predicted, this could be devastating to the Patient Protection and Affordable Care Act. It could maim the law. It could tear down major pieces of Obamacare. It could sink Obamacare. Now, if you're new to the PPACA, or even if you're familiar with it and new to this particular controversy, you'll probably have the following reaction to this idea that the law sub uh, offers those subsidies only in states that establish their own exchanges. That just can't be right. It must have been an oversight. Congress could not have intended to write the law that way. It doesn't make any sense. Those subsidies must be available in all states including through federal exchanges for the law to work. If they aren't, that means Congress effectively gave states the power to blow the whole thing up. Why would Congress give states the power to blow the whole thing up? And that's why supporters of the law, when we've raised this issue, have been incredulous. Uh, Ethan Rome, the executive director of Healthcare for America Now, said that th this, this idea is, quote, a Republican fantasy grounded in a lack of fact. Jonathan Cohn of the, uh, at uh, the New Republic has said this is preposterous. As Kelly mentioned, Sally Lazarus uh, 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 upped the ante. He said it's in your face preposterous. And those are the nicer reactions that, that people have had to this, to this line of argument and, and this lawsuit. Jonathan Gruber, who's an architect of the PPACA, has called this idea screwy, nutty, and stupid that Congress would have withheld tax credits from states that declined to create exchange. Josh Barrow, a columnist at Bloomberg, has said it, the idea is bonkers insane. Now, when Jonathan Adler, a law professor at Case Western University and my co-author on the, the paper that Kelly mentioned, first alerted me to this feature of the law in 2011, I, I, th I thought this was a mistake. I, 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 I too thought that this, this had to be a drafting error. And when we wrote about this issue in the Wall Street Journal that year, we called it a glitch. We thought that this was a, a mistake that Congress has made. But then we dug a little deeper. And to our surprise, we found that this was not a mistake or a glitch. This was a feature of the law included intentionally and purposefully by its authors. Now, how do we know this? Well, first we looked at the statute. We found that the language restricting tax credits to state-established exchanges was remarkably consistent and, and tightly worded. In the tax credit eligibility rules found in Section 1401 of the law, there are five references to health insurance exchanges. Each and every one of them is to an exchange, quote, established by the state under Section 1311. So the law says that the taxpayer uh, is eligible for health insurance, for premium assistance tax credits, if he is covered by a qualified health plan that was enrolled in through an exchange established by the state under Section 1311. There's no parallel language. The language is remarkably consistent for such a hastily and messily uh, drafted uh, piece of uh, legislation. And there's no parallel language anywhere in the statute authorizing those tax credits through to individuals who are enrolled in health insurance plans through exchanges established by the federal government under Section 1321, which is the section that directs the federal government to establish those fallback exchanges. We found that when Congress said established by the state, they really meant it. If you look at Section 1311, it says that for purposes of that section, an exchange must be, again, quote, established by a state. And Congress knew the difference between the state and the federal government we found. And just in case you don't, or anyone else doesn't, they put it right there in the law. They clarified in Section 1304 that the term state means each of the 50 states in the District of Columbia. So this is just too tightly worded and too consistent uh, a set of uh, uh, tax credit eligibility rules to be a drafting error. Congress made state and federal exchanges equivalent in most ways, but not in this way. We also found that this wasn't the only way that Congress used financial incentives to encourage states to establish exchanges. In addition to offering tax credits only in states that established their own exchange, 
The law offered startup grants to states to get their exchanges up and running. The law imposed a pretty burdensome requirement on state Medicaid programs that lifted only, only if the state is established and got its own exchange up and running. Nor was this the only way that Congress used financial incentives to get states to implement major portions of the PPACA. Now, this, this point seems a little, it's almost so obvious that you might miss it. In fact, I did miss it for a while until uh, Jonathan Adler pointed it out to me. This is exactly what co how Congress encouraged states to implement the law's Medicaid expansion. In both cases, Congress said that residents of compliant states would get subsidies, while residents of non-compliant states would get nothing. We found that Congress knew how to create full equivalence between state and federally established exchanges if that is what Congress wanted to do. In the reconciliation bill that amended the PPACA that was crucial to House Democrats supporting it, House Democrats inserted language making exchanges established by U.S. territories fully equivalent to exchanges established by states, including language explicitly authorizing premium assistance tax credits in territorial exchanges. Again, there's no such language regarding uh, uh, drawing full, cre creating full equivalence between state and federal exchanges. And finally, we found that statute not only restricts tax credits to state-established exchanges, but the language directing the HHS secretary to establish fallback exchanges in states that don't even requires HHS to honor that restriction even requires HHS to honor the, restriction, the, the tax credit eligibility rules that restrict uh, those tax credits to state established exchanges. But we didn't just stop at the text of the statute. We searched the legislative history. We wondered, could Congress really have meant this? And it turns out that there was a clear and articulated rationale for restricting tax credits to states that established their own exchanges. In 2009, if you'll recall, it became clear to Senate Democrats that they were going to overcome a Republican filibuster of their health care bill, they needed every one of the 60 Democratic senators uh, voting for this bill, which means they had to accede to the demands of moderate Democrats that health insurance exchanges be run by states. Now, this created a problem for them. If the exchanges were to be run by states, how is Congress going to get the states to do this? Congress cannot command state that states do something, implement a federal program like a health insurance exchange. That's a, 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 a consistent principle of, of the Supreme Court's uh, federal, federalism jurisprudence that was upheld in NFIB versus Sebelius. So, and it shows that this law had a dual purpose, not only to subsidize health insurance for people, but to get states to run exchanges. So how did Congress get around this? Well, in, or how did Congress solve this commandeering problem? Well, in early 2009, a law professor named Timothy Jost who's been very influential uh, with the, both the drafting of the PPACA and its implementation. In early 2009, before this law was even drafted, he suggested that Congress, even though it can't require states to establish exchanges, it can encourage them, invite state participation, as he put it, by offering tax subsidies only in states that complied with federal requirements. So this idea was out there. And we also found that even though the authors of this law were reluctant to broadcast it, they knew exactly what they were doing. In open committee, this man, Senator Max Baucus, who is the chief author of this statute, admitted that not only were they conditioning tax credits on state establishment of exchanges, and, but they had an additional reason for doing so. His committee, the Finance Committee, which is the Senate's tax writing committee, wouldn't have had jurisdiction to tell states to create exchanges unless they made it a condition of, of their uh, residents receiving these tax credits. 
The Senate Democrats, and there's more from the legislative history. The Senate Democrats' other leading health care bill contained a similar feature. Instead of withholding tax credits from states that failed to establish an exchange, it withheld its subsidies from states that failed to enact laws imposing the, that bill's employer mandate on state and municipal governments. In both state cases, if states failed to comply, their residents got nothing. And we searched, the, and we didn't stop there, we searched the congressional record for every mention of health insurance exchanges over the course of the debate over the PPACA and every hearing that Congress conducted on the bill. The only time that anyone touched on the question of what would happen if states refused to establish exchanges was Max Baucus's admission that they were making, uh, that, those, that those tax credits would not be available uh, through a federal exchange. And we found one other piece of, of legislative history that bears on this question. When House De and Senate Democrats were merging their two bills, a group of 12 Texas Democrats wrote a letter to President Obama and the House leadership that said, we don't want the Senate bill because under the Senate bill, if states do, don't implement an exchange, then residents of those states would not receive any benefit from the law and, quote, millions of people will be left no better off than before Congress acted. Which suggests that they knew that, that's, that the plain, uh, they were aware that the plain language of the statute would withhold tax credits from states that refused to establish an exchange. So when the IRS issued a rule stating it was going to issue those subsidies in those 34 states, uh, it, when it decreed with this one paragraph justification that it was going to spend up to $1.2 trillion in states with federal exchanges, the agency was violating the clear language of the statute in part because the agency didn't appear to do any research at all into the history and purpose of this language. They made vague references to this, uh, our, the, 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 the statutory language supports our interpretation. The relevant legislative history doesn't demonstrate that Congress intended to deny tax credits uh, to states with federal ex exchanges and so forth. Since then, since the IRS has issued this rule, supporters of the, uh, of the IRS have gone on a fishing expedition for uh, legal rationales that could justify the IRS's rule. And they throw their line in the water and they pull up one rationale and it turns out, look, we've got, and they say, look, we've got a fish and it turns out, no, it's a boot. And then they throw another uh, line, in the, the line in the water again, they pull something up, they say, look, we've got a fish this time and it turns out it's, a, it's an old tire. Every time they try to come up with a rationale uh, for the IRS's rule, it falls flat. And I hope we can get into the details of, uh, of, of those various rationales. But no matter what you thought congressional intent was, Congress intended to withhold these tax credits and the taxes they, that they trigger in states that decline to establish an exchange. The uh, supporters of the IRS rule have offered nothing from the statute and nothing from the legislative history that can uh, justify this tax, this attempt to tax, borrow, and spend $800 billion in violation of the express will of Congress. Thank you. Hi, I'm Mike Carve, and I'll try not to repeat too much what Michael's already walked through. I'll be uh, arguing this case in district court. I'll just begin by the, with the observation that this is literally the simplest case I've ever had in 30 years of practicing law. I mean, who but a lawyer could pretend that a statute which says you're eligible for these subsidies if you're in a health plan in an exchange established by a state under 13, Many one means, well, you're also eligible if it's established by the federal government under an entirely different uh, provision of the statute. I mean, this is not a question of statutory interpretation. This is a question of whether you believe in the rule of law. 
Congress couldn't have been clear. If it's a state-operated exchange, you get the subsidies. If it's not a state-operated exchange, there's no authorization to spend $800 billion of taxpayers' money on this. And I know that there's a group out there that believes the language in the Constitution grows and lives and evolves, but typically they haven't tried to import that, that view of lawlessness into a statute that hasn't even taken effect yet. Uh, this statute would have had to grow and evolve in the womb before it ever took effect. And then, so, and I know I'm being sarcastic, but the truth is really, this is a question of whether or not you can come up with some comprehensible rationale that says an exchange established by a state means exactly the opposite. And the IRS didn't try and provide any rationale, just simply a bunch of majestic generalities. So you ask yourself, well, was it some kind of Scrivener's error? Did they just, did they not understand what the word state meant? Did, did the pen slip? What, what happened here? And for all the reasons that Michael's trudged through pretty quickly, it's obviously not true. They put the state exchanges in one part of the act, they put the federal exchanges in the other part of the act. Whenever they went through the act, they would always be careful to either say the state exchange or the federal exchange, or when they wanted to, they would say an exchange under this act, which would encompass both federal and state-run exchanges. When they wanted to make it clear the territories were the same as states, they added a provision that says territories are the same, uh, territorial exchanges are the same as state exchanges. Is this utter lunacy? Is this so absurd that no rational person could think uh, that Congress could have intended such a, such a result? No. I mean, it makes perfect sense. They had an insoluble dilemma. They had to uh, pretend that this uh, law respected federalism. They had to go out and say, this isn't a federal government takeover of health care. And our exhibit A of this is the states are going to be running the exchanges. The Obama administration was constantly saying, why is everybody saying this is a federal takeover of health care? The states are running the exchanges. But you can't make states do what the federal government wants to do. You have to bribe them. You have to offer, make them an offer they can't refuse, just like under Medicaid. And they thought they were making them an offer they couldn't refuse. They're saying to the states, legislatures, and governors, even in, in Republican-dominated states, we're going to give you $800 billion of federal money to put your people, buy health insurance for your people. For all the reasons these folks are going to tell you, it's unthinkable that Congress couldn't have uh, offered $800 million in, in states that didn't buy it. They, Congress thought that's exactly the calculus that the state governments would say. We can't go back to our voters and say, we've just turned down all this free federal money uh, because we didn't run or run the exchange. So uh, once you condition us, the state governments, running the exchange on getting these subsidies, then that will uh, be an offer that will make them all do it. Now, it turned out that 34 of them said, no, thank you. I don't really want to do it. We don't know what would have happened if the IRS adhered to the law, because before the states ever had to make that decision, uh, the IRS gave them the quid without extracting the quo. They gave them the sweet without getting the bitter. They said, look, you run the exchanges, you get $800 billion. You don't run the exchanges, you get $800 billion. That makes your decision about running the exchanges a lot simpler. So the language is clear as it could possibly be. Congress's consciousness of what the language meant is clear as it possibly could be, and the policy is eminently sensible. So what is it exactly that the IRS and these folks today are going to tell you um, authorizes the federal judiciary to rewrite uh, a statute enacted by Congress? 
as Michael indicated, they sort of grasp at straws as you go through the statute. There's one statute that says, look, if the states don't set up the exchange, then uh, HHS will take it over and it will operate such exchange. And they say, aha, such exchange, see? Such, same thing, same exchange. Well, yeah, the exchange will be the same. The exchange will do the same thing, regardless of whether the state government runs it or the federal government runs it. But that's the whole point. They tie the subsidies to which entity will be operating and creating the exchange. So such gets you absolutely nowhere. You say, you know, there's a provision in the statute that says you're going to have to share information about um, how much subsidies you're going to give. And since 34 of the states won't have to be providing any subsidies under your theory, uh, that doesn't make any sense, right? Why would you make them share information? Because, and the short answer is because this information sharing requirement applies to both the state-run and federally-run exchanges. And it makes perfect sense to say if only the federally-run exchanges need some information, they, they will be provided it. I, I could go on, but I'll, I'll, I'll end where I began. No one but a lawyer could seriously stand up here and tell you that North means South, Black means White, and State means Federal. And all you need to do is read the statute and know that that is what the law is. And if we're going to be governed not <clears throat> by uh, policy, not by partisan preferences of federal judges, but by law among people to whom we've delegated the power to make those laws, then there's no only one answer to this case. And I'm quite confident the federal judiciary will vindicate that view. Thanks. Well, let me start by saying no one would, but a lawyer could tell you that a statute named the Affordable Care Act is designed to deny uh, the ability to afford insurance to uh, people in states across the country. Now, I have no doubt that many of you here opposed the Affordable Care Act in the legislature and still oppose it and sought and supported the repeal of it. But litigation is not politics by other means. And that's why we have limitations on the jurisdiction of the federal courts. And those limitations, in fact, are fatal to the Halbig case. Uh, there's also limitations on time here, so I'm not going to address those. I'm going to focus, consistent with the rule of law, on the language of the statute. Now, I've read Justice Scalia's book on statutory interpretation, and I don't agree with it or at least all of it. But the fact is that under his rules, which are the standard rules, we win. And I'm going to demonstrate here that the only plausible meaning of the words that Congress chose is that taxpayers with incomes between 100 and 400% of the federal policy level get a tax credit to purchase insurance. And I will also show that under Mr. Carvin's and Mr. Cannon's interpretation, not only would the provisions that we're arguing about here be incoherent, but it would also render hundreds of other provisions in the statute nonsensical or useless. And I'll focus on the statutory language, and Mr. Lazarus will discuss the legislative history, or more aptly, the lack of legislative history. Now, 
a central principle of statutory interpretation is that you have to look at the entire statute, not just a few words with blinders on, and that's what my friends here are doing. You look at the context. Justice Scalia says it's critical to figure out what the statute is trying to accomplish, not pulling it from the ether, from the legislative history, he says, but you have to do that from the language. Now, Mr. Carvin and Mr. Cannon claim that Congress thought, thought, sought in the provision on tax credits to pressure states into establishing exchanges by denying the credits to their low-income citizens. Well, statute, of course, never says that that's what it was trying to do. They have to infer it. And to infer it, they have to disregard what the statute does say it was trying to do. Uh, Title I of the Act, uh, where the provisions we're debating appear, expressly states its objective, affording quality, affordable care for all Americans. Not just Americans in some states, all Americans. The relevant subtitle reiterates the goal, affordable coverage choices for all Americans. The section that has the deduction, uh, the tax credits in it, says what it's about, tax credits for premium assistance. Assistance means you're helping somebody, helping them afford insurance. Rather than address this context, what we have here is essentially an effort to quarantine seven words in one subsection. Now that type of subatomic focus I submit is misleading, sort of like an extreme close-up photograph, uh, and you can't tell what you're looking at till you look at the entire context. Here, isolating seven words uh, is a path to a, an absurd result, not to plain meaning. So instead, let's start with the definition of an exchange as laid out in Section 1311. That section creates the American Health Benefit Exchanges and says that the statute will refer to them in the title as an exchange. Note the capital E. That signifies it's a defined term. And then Section 1311D, a lot of sections here, try to follow it, it fills out the definition. An exchange shall be mandatory, a government agency or nonprofit entity that is established by the state. That's a definition. In case you don't think it's a definition, statute defines it again. Term exchange with a capital E, signifying it's a defined term, means a health benefit exchange established under Section 1311. So the plain meaning, when you see the word exchange in this statute, it means an exchange established by the state under 1311. There's no other way to read it. Now let's turn to Section 1321C1. Now it says, that's one of the provisions we're debating, it says if the, if the state doesn't establish an exchange with a capital E, then the secretary will establish it and operate it. Uh, but but how, how can this be? We've already seen that an exchange has been defined as something that's established by a state. So if the federal government establishes an exchange, it cannot be an exchange with a capital E because it doesn't satisfy the definition. And they do use it with a capital E. Red is Mr. 
Carvin and Mr. Cannon suggest, this section instructs the secretary to set up and operate an exchange that isn't an exchange because it doesn't fit the definition. Now there was, so it's, and it's a basic canon of statutory construction that the same word has the same meaning throughout the statute. There's in fact only one way to interpret the statute to make any sense. It says the secretary shall establish such exchange. It doesn't say an exchange. It doesn't say a federal exchange. It doesn't say, as Mr. Carvin would like it to say, the same type of exchange. It says such, such exchange with a capital E using the defined term. Now, what exchange could it be referring to? Well, there's only one in the entire statute. It's the one that's created under Section 1311. So what's the only way that the secretary could establish an exchange that fits this definition? There's only one way. The secretary has to stand in for the state. Secretary has to act on behalf of the state, step into the shoes of the state. That's not uncommon in the law. Now, the consequences of my friend's interpretation here goes beyond rendering 1321 nonsensical. The section doesn't permit the uh, federal government to stand in for the states, then the states can never alter their Medicaid eligibility uh, or benefits uh, because they're not allowed to do it until Secretary determines that an exchange established by the state under Section 1311 is operative. And by the way, if you look at this section, that's how Congress imposes a condition, not this stealth method that we're talking about here. In addition, another requirement says that if uh, they can't uh, have enough money for the states for, for uh, children's insurance, they have to establish a procedure uh, to uh, make sure that, uh, that the insurance is available under a, a, an exchange established by a state. Well, this can't be done if you're a federally facilitated exchange, so it's an impossible requirement. Other provisions, if an exchange, if the federal government can't step in for the state government, there's no qualified health plans because that's one issued with uh, or recognized by an exchange. Federally facilitated exchanges aren't subject to the record keeping requirements. They don't have to determine, or at least they're not required to determine whether a citizen is lawfully present in the United States. So if, if, if the federal government can step into the shoes of the state, then the provision we're talking about in 1401 really isn't a problem. But beyond that, because, because a, an exchange established by the state includes an exchange where the federal government steps in. But let's focus on that provision. And uh, by the way, Justice Scalia says it's a general principle. We won't interpret a statute to have absurd results. Subsection A, though, this is 1401, establishes 36B of the, of the Internal Revenue Code. It says that um, in the case of an applicable taxpayer, there shall be allowed as a credit against the tax imposed by the subtitle an amount equal to the premium assistance. Shall be allowed. That's mandatory. Plain language, low-income taxpayer gets a credit. So where does the exchange language come in in the next section, the amount of the credit? 
premium assistance amount is what it's called, the amount of the credit you get to assist you in the, in the premium. And it says the amount of the premium we're talking about that you're assisted on is what you get through an exchange established by the state under Section 1311. So under the interpretation we're offered, Congress is saying, yeah, you get, an, you get a, um, a credit to help you buy insurance, but guess what? If you live in Alabama, the amount of the credit is zero. Now, and that's supposed to be a more plausible interpretation than saying that the federal government steps into the shoes of, um, of, of the state. The, it's really like uh, inviting somebody to dinner and then not feeding them. Congress didn't intend that. Uh, it's, it's not a, a rational or plausible interpretation of the statute. And in fact, as Mr. Lazarus will show, there's absolutely no evidence in the legislative history to support this warped interpretation. Thank you. Thanks. Um, I, I just have to say that I'm little disappointed with Kelly for uh, stealing my lines, uh, so I'll have to come up with some other ones. Um, and, but I want to thank Michael Cannon, uh, my friend Michael Cannon, whom I often have pleasant and interesting uh, interactions with, um, and I enjoy them always, um, for making a great deal of my case uh, and simplifying it. Um, Rob has explained why the statute itself, the text of the statute, uh, if you look at the whole statute and don't take the quarantine approach that uh, my friends uh, Michael Carvin and Michael Cannon uh, would have us uh, use, if you look at the whole statute, the text uh, most plausibly, uh, by way of understatement, uh, compels the interpretation that uh, uh, the tax credits and, and, and subsidies will be available to Americans wherever they happen to live in the United States. <clears throat> what I'm going to do um, is uh, um, address the attempt that uh, uh, Mr. Cannon and Mr. Carvin make to, to give some rationality to their uh, perverse interpretation of the statutory language. Uh, I'm going to uh, address their uh, arguments about why the legislative history shows that uh, Congress actually intended this result and that um, their interpretation of the text uh, actually fulfills a purpose, the purpose that Congress had in mind. So basically, this, ish, this part of the uh, dispute between the two sides poses this question. Did the 111th Congress deliberately design the Affordable Care Act exchanges to quote, uh, to quote, uh, one of Michael Cannon's more colorful uh, descriptions, to quote, drive a stake through the heart of Obamacare? Did Congress deliberately do that? Well, the answer, uh, or my answer, surprisingly enough, is of course they did not do that. Uh, and I would go on uh, to uh, suggest that even conservative judges, the judges on whom uh, Michael Carvin is counting, uh, even conservative judges won't swallow that whopper. But it's important to note, for everybody to keep in mind, in order for uh, Mr. Cannon and Mr. Carvin and their allies to prevail on this issue and in court, 
they will have to persuade those judges not only to swallow that whopper, but to sell it to the country as a principled lawful basis for the, these, uh, such judges' decision to drive that stake through the ACA and to strip millions of Americans of access to affordable health co coverage that uh, the public uh, is uh, well aware that the ACA intended them to have. They are, in effect, asking uh, sympathetic judges, and there are sympathetic judges on the federal courts, we know that. They are asking sympathetic judges for an 11th hour last-ditch bailout. Um, and I have to say, uh, I wouldn't, wouldn't bet on their chances. Uh, and here's, here's why. Uh, well, to begin with, the first time, as Michael explained, so I'm not going to go into it in a great deal of detail, um, the first time that uh, ACA opponents spotted this uh, uh, issue with uh, the language of, of Section 1311, they, they felt and they argued that this gotcha spin on uh, basically two isolated provisions of text was all they needed to win the case. But soon they recognized that this was not true, um, uh, and they developed this argument about the legislative history and, and, and uh, the statutory purpose. Um, they recognized that this was not true because, as Rob showed, uh, the individual provisions on which they rely are not self-explanatory, um, and indeed they are contradicted by uh, uh, other uh, textual provisions of the Act. So. Uh, Michael uh, Cannon and, and uh, Jonathan Adler and their, their allies developed, moved off of their original text-only argument, uh, and they moved to a claim about the ACA's legislative history and purpose. And I must say, the claim they are offering, which they have outlined here, um, is uh, uh, eye-catching, as Michael Cannon uh, eloquently noted. People have trouble believing that uh, Congress intended uh, to uh, uh, cripple the act it was passing. Um, it's eye-catching, and indeed, it's head-scratching. Because um, if that's true, and we should think about this, if, if what they say about Congress's purpose is, is true, what the act really means uh, is a well, Does that mean five minutes left or five minutes gone? All the same, about 10 well, minutes. That's a good point. <laughs> I never was very good at arithmetic. Uh, um, <laughs> thanks. Um, it, it, would, it would mean that in states with federally facilitated exchanges, that purpose, that language, um, would uh, put all of Obamacare in the, in the uh, balance. It would drive a stake through the heart of Obamacare. It would bring Obamacare's exchange engine to <coughs> screeching halt. Why would uh, the, the people who drafted and enacted and fought so hard to get it done uh, have done this? Well. Uh, Cannon and Carvin explain that in structuring the premium assistance provisions of the Act, the sponsor's overriding purpose was not to uh, promote universal health care, which is what people think their purpose was throughout the Act. It was instead their, the overriding purpose of these provisions was to pressure the states into establishing exchanges and to do this through this uh, carrot and stick approach uh, that Michael Carvin uh, described. Now, if this seems like rather, uh, a rather odd pressure tactic for Democratic leaders uh, to, to have adopted, if you look cl more closely uh, at their uh, uh, evidence for this uh, theory, 
um, it, it becomes the litigation equivalent of, of a UFO sighting. In the massive record of, of Congress's deliberation, there's literally not one reference to this implausible purpose. Um, now, um, Michael Cannon has, has uh, noted uh, one piece of evidence. Uh, he says it's the only place in the entire record, only one place, um, that uh, th this purpose is somehow uh, re referred to. Um, Michael Carvin uh, dropped this, uh, or at least it's not in your, your brief uh, in support of your motion for summary judgment. We dealt with legally relevant issues, but, but go ahead. But in any, I, I, and I, I took that to mean that, that you had concluded, as uh, I and, and many others have concluded, that this, uh, the so-called Bacchus exchange in the, during the Finance Committee's markup is totally irrelevant to the issue that we're discussing here. But, perhaps, but apparently it, it, you're, it's still being cited. Um, and I will just say what that exchange consisted of, and again, it's the only one, uh, only uh, instance that, uh, that, that Michael uh, finds in the entire record. Baucus was in the middle of an argument about whether or not uh, uh, Senator Ensign's Med-Mal amendment uh, could be, uh, could, was germane and could be debated in his committee. Um, and, and he simply said, it can't be, uh, but the, ins the insurance uh, uh, coverage requirements, which are sort of not really uh, finance committee material, could be because they were linked to the provision of tax credits and tax taxes are eminently the finance committee's jurisdiction. But there's absolutely nothing in what he says that uh, indicates that the tax credits were only going to be available in state uh, in, in in states with state managed exchanges. Um, now this massive silence. I mean, total silence about this issue is not simply evidence. It is in itself a definitive refutation of the existence of this alleged purpose because, a th they, because it is a threat. The way um, uh, the, the, my, the, my friends, the two Michaels, uh, describe this purpose, it's a threat to the states to incentivize them to establish exchanges. But a threat can't be kept secret. By its very nature, a threat must be communicated. Uh, there's no such thing as a stealth threat, and yet this is what um, uh, uh, the, t uh, the two Michaels here would, would uh, want uh, a federal judge or the majority of the Supreme Court to m make this momentous uh, decision to drive a stake through the, uh, through the ACA on. Um, and I should also note that the threat was never, not only never communicated, it was never received, never noticed by the state governments at whom it was supposedly aimed. Um, the state governments were enormously active uh, in, in uh, uh, lobbying and, and uh, paying attention to what was going into the Affordable Care Act. They never brought this up at all. Um, and uh, so it, it's, this is a threat that was never communicated and, and never uh, received. And there's a reason why no one on either side spotted this chimera of a threat, and, and that is it simply makes no sense. It makes no sense to think that um, shrewd uh, leaders like Harry Reid, Chuck Schumer, Patty Murray, Max Baucus uh, would um, deliberately design uh, some, uh, something that uh, a poison pill for their own uh, for their own piece of legislation for which they labored so hard to get it enacted. Um, I mean, this would have been uh, a shock to the kneecaps, but not to their adversaries' kneecaps, uh, to their own, uh, as Michael has already described uh, in, in uh, uh, detail in his presentation. That uh, would be 
uh, more important, a serious setback for the ACA and a disaster for the millions of uninsured and underinsured citizens that they were working so hard to, to benefit. So that might explain why in the entire record of the ACA there is no trace of such, uh, uh, of any such purpose. Um, let me just conclude by saying that, as I suggested at the, at the beginning, um, that uh, my friends over here and, and their allies have fought very hard and for very principled reasons to defeat uh, the ACA uh, in the political arenas where, um, where it should be uh, de de debated. And they have lost um, in two elections and, and in Congress. Um, and I have to suggest that it is a very heavy lift they are trying to impose on uh, ideologically, on ideological kinsmen and women on, on the federal bench uh, to, to bail them out with a decision which I expect would be viewed as even less principled and more political uh, than, uh, than Bush v. Gore. Uh, and with all respect to Michael Carvin, uh, I, I respect greatly his ability as a litigator, um, and, but I doubt that the judiciary will take the bait that this lawsuit tenders and venture out on that limb. Thank you very much to our panelists. We have, um, we're going to set aside a few minutes here for some back and forth. If anyone wants to uh, rebut anything that was said or, or lob accusations at another, uh, uh, now is your chance to do so. Uh, I guess we can start with Michael and Mike. Uh, anything in particular you'd like to uh, say? Oh, about you know, 20 minutes worth, but I've, but I've only got two. So uh, every, the idea that this is absurd is absurd. This is exactly what Congress does with Medicaid. It's exactly what the Help Committee's bill did with its exchanges, uh, ex even more explicitly than under, than under this statute. Uh, the Congressional Research Service and uh, Harvard Law Review have said, no, there's a real issue here. This is, this is not absurd. And every time we hear that uh, you're just taking a quarantine approach or you're looking at this language in isolation, uh, or even this was a drafting error, this, those are either explicit or implicit admissions that the statute expressly prohibits what the IRS is trying to do. Uh, and, and it violates a canon of statutory interpretation that says you have to give meaning to every provision of the law, and yet the interpretation that the IRS is advancing would gut both the by the state and the under section 1311 clauses that appear repeatedly throughout the bill. Uh, the claim that the law's only purpose is affordability is incorrect. There, the, it has at least two purposes. The other one is to get states to establish exchanges that had to happen in order for this law to be, for this bill to become law. It wouldn't have cleared the Senate otherwise. The federal government can stand in the shoes of states if you're talking about the federal government doing something that states won't do. But if they're doing something that if the issue is doing something that only states can do, like establish an exchange established by a state under Section 1311, then the federal government cannot stand in the shoes of states. That's a that's a commandeering. Uh, the uh, the idea that uh, they're withholding uh, this law is I'll, I'll skip over that part and, and just get to the to the Baucus uh, part. I want to thank Cy for coming here today because he's he's conceded that Max Baucus admitted that. Uh, he was trying to withhold tax credits in states that didn't create federal exchanges. And the way he did that is he said that the creation of an exchange is linked to the tax credits, or, or the tax credits are linked to a state's creation of the exchange. If they're available in both state and federal exchanges, the tax credits, then they're not linked to the state's decision. 
They are only linked to the state's decision if they are not available in federal exchanges. So, and, and, and is, and now no one talked about this in the, I should say we found two mentions in the congressional record of what would happen if the states didn't create an exchange. Um, under the PPACA. One was by uh, Michael Burgess, a congressman from Texas. He said, oh, we'll get a public option. So it, was, it wasn't really on point. The only mention that was on point was Max Box's colloquy with uh, John Ensign. Uh, and what explains why he would put that in there and there would be no discussion about it was the widespread assumption by everybody, supporters and opponents of the PPACA, that every state would uh, establish and exchange. That assumption was so widespread that even recently when the New York Times is reported on it, they didn't even bother to cite it. They just said everyone expected that uh, all states would create an exchange. I'm an opponent of the law. I was taken by surprise that 34 states have refused to establish an exchange. But I think that answers uh, size uh, 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 argument that there would have been some discussion about this. No, there wasn't any discussion about this, both because it was such a routine thing and because everyone expected states to comply. Mike. Yeah, let me begin where I ended in saying that they're trying to create ambiguity, right? And Rob's argument is exchanges must be established by the state because it says that right in the statute. If it's not run by the state, then it's not an exchange. Does that make any sense to you? Do you think that if the state's not running it, there is not an exchange? What about in those states where the state decided not to run the exchange? Is he suggesting that Congress contemplated that they just wouldn't have an exchange and they'd throw up their hands? Well, the answer to that is you go to 36B. It tells you exactly what they expected to happen if the states didn't set up the exchange. They expected the secretary of HHS to step in and do it. So they knew there was going to be two kinds of animals out there. They referenced them in the statute, the one set up by HHS and the one set up by the state. Then when they come to figuring out where the tax credit subsidies are, they say the first one, the one set up by the state, that's where you get your tax subsidies. He tries to make this complicated. Section one of a law says the city will set up a park. Section two says if the city doesn't set up the park, the state must do it. The state will do it. Section three says, look, if the city sets it up, uh, the state will pick up the litter. That'll give you an incentive uh, to do it. Then you have people who in interpret statutes like this and say, well, see, they only contemplated that the city would do it because in either instance, you're going to have a park and it wouldn't make any sense to have a dirty park if, uh, if, the, if the city didn't take up its option. That's not English. It's not logic. It's not law. And so what they've now tried to do is say, well, the broader purpose was to make sure that everybody had all the money they wanted to buy insurance. So, and that doesn't make sense. Because, and so we're going to read this broader purpose to override the statutory language. Again, their problem is they have to show that the statutory language literally is incomprehensible if you're going to depart from it. You can't cite legislative history. You can't cite anything else. The law is the law. Are they arguing that it's incomprehensible? Are they arguing that it doesn't make sense? They're saying it's contrary to the public policies endorsed by Nancy Pelosi. They're saying we're being ideological. I would love it if Justice Scalia could say, I'm going to ignore every part of the Affordable Care Act, notwithstanding its plain language, if I don't think it makes some sense from a policy perspective, because then it would be a very short act indeed. But we haven't deputized the federal judiciary to substitute their policy judgments for that of Congress, and it may not be the best written uh, statute in the world. I think we all knew that when it was being enacted, that it wasn't going to be 
perfect English, so this is hardly surprising. But what they can't do is give you a reason for overriding the law. And it has nothing to do with myopia versus big picture. It has to do with the English language versus nonsense. And since they can't come up with anything that comports with the English language to tell you that state means uh, federal or a state created under Section 31, 1311 means something created by HHS under Section 1320. Uh, uh, 21, they've got to come up with all these smoke and mirrors. Um, at the end of the day, we, we don't look at legislative history for precisely these reasons, because we don't know how to discern congressional intent unless it's in the statute. We don't know if you're looking at Senator Nelson's Cornhusker kickback intent or Senator Landrews or Nan Nancy Pelosi's, and we can't go back and retroactively interview them to discern their intent. That's why we discern congressional intent from the statute, not from the legislative history. My only point on the legislative history is they haven't been able to point anything in the legislative history that backs up their assertions either. Nobody stood up and said this would be unthinkable. Mm -hmm. that's, that's hardly uh, fatal to their claim. So at the end of the day, I think we either have to abide by the law or, and by the way, if this is really so contrary to good government and basic public policy, then I'm quite sure Congress will fix it after the Congress, after the courts have interpreted the ACA to say what it says. For, for people who are so worried about circumventing the democratic process, it's a little tough to understand why they're so worried about the democratic process. Thanks. Okay. Rob, Sai? Sure. Um, well, the problem with uh, Mr. Carvin's park analogy is that the statute there would have to say a park is only a park when it's established by the state. Section 1321 does not set up two types of exchanges. What it does is says that the federal government shall run an exchange, uses a term that, it's been def that has been defined. Three times it was defined. And... It uses that term, and it's a basic canon of statutory construction, that a word has the same meaning throughout the statute. So if you read Section 1321 with the hyperliteralism that uh, we're, uh, we're, is being offered here, uh, then you get a, a section that says uh, that the federal government shall establish an exchange that is not an exchange can't mean that, so what does it mean? Well, the only thing it can mean is that the federal government, by operation of law, stands in for the state. That happens all the time. But guess what? I don't have to show that it's the only plausible way to read the statute. I only have to show that it is a plausible way, because the IRS was, by statute, committed with the obligation and um, the obligation to interpret this statute, to put out rules to implement it. And that gives, if there's any ambiguity in the statute, and if, if we adopt their meaning, it, it, it's, uh, it's gibberish, that's at the very least ambiguity, uh, the, uh, the, the IRS gets deference under Chevron. And in particular, actually in tax cases, there's, there's particularly strong deference and at, that's conclusive here. This was a rulemaking. They get deference for the rulemaking. Now, I didn't say that the statute only had a purpose of affordability. What I said was that their interpretation of the statute ignores the purpose of the sections and the subtitle and the title in which 
the uh, uh, provisions they are interpreting appear and that you have to um, look at those in order to uh, interpret the statute correctly. With regard to Medicaid, as I indicated before, Medicaid imposed, uh, Congress imposed a clear condition there, said if you don't establish this program, you don't get, uh, you, you, you are subject to being cut off uh, on Medicaid. Well, for one thing, that goes to the discretion of the secretary, not here where the statute has an automatic cutoff, but the point is where Congress wanted to impose a condition, it didn't do it by stealth. It said we are imposing a condition. So, so really what we're talking about here is a purpose of the statute, as Mr. Lazarus said, a purpose that is inferred to try to induce states to uh, uh, establish exchanges, except nobody knew, even, even Mr. Ken, nobody knew that's what they were trying to do. How do you induce somebody if they don't know they're being induced? How do you threaten them if, you don't, if they don't know that they're being uh, threatened? When the states sued under Medicaid for uh, the coercive aspects of Medicaid, they didn't sue on the grounds that uh, the exchange provisions were coercive. They didn't sue on the grounds that their middle-income citizens were being held hostage. Was it because they, 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 they overlooked it? No, it was because it wasn't there, and now it's being supplied after the fact. Sai, any final thoughts? Yes, thanks. Um, I, I just want to note that the Chevron point that Rob has just made about the, uh, the standards for deference to agency uh, 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 rulemaking decisions is the reason why Michael Cannon's uh, explication, and to some extent Michael Carbon's, of what the legislative history allegedly shows uh, and, and why uh, Congress had this very deliberate intent uh, to uh, use um, cutting off uh, these tax credits and subsidies as a stick, in Michael Carvin's language, um, as a stick to beat, beat the states and to persuade them. They need that because without it, uh, they have uh, an at best uh, ambiguous statute uh, and, and the, uh, deference to uh, the IRS's pl uh, permissible interpretation uh, is, is going to govern. So that's why they need it. Now, uh, and, and why they don't have it, Michael Carbon, uh, I think, more or less conceded, I think, that there is nothing in the legislative history except the, 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 this alleged Baucus exchange. Um, and by the way, I did not concede, uh, Michael Cannon, um, that the exchange shows that uh, Baucus understood that only uh, um, state uh, administered exchanges would receive tax credit authority. Uh, what I said was, he said that uh, um, uh, the, the committee has jurisdiction over, over these provisions because of the, of the existence of tax credits in them. And there's absolutely nothing in the language he used uh, that uh, indicates that the, the credits would be available only on state exchanges. And uh, Michael is so proud of this. Uh, discovery that he actually has a YouTube uh, of the exchange, and I invite anybody to go to the YouTube and 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 uh, tell me with a straight face that that it makes the point that he that he says that it does. Um, uh, uh, some of these other examples, he he 
briefly uh, reference the fact that the HELP Committee bill um, did, in, it did have in it a, a provision for cutting off um, uh, tax credits and subsidies. But two problems with that. One, the HELP Committee bill was, was uh, n not the bill that formed uh, the model that the Senate actually passed uh, for the exchange provisions. That came out of the Finance Committee. So what the HELP Committee bill provided uh, is really not relevant at all. Secondly, however, um, the HELP Committee bill's cutoff was a cutoff if states uh, did not comply with their responsibilities as employers to provide uh, compl ACA compliant health insurance for their uh, for their employees, uh, it had nothing to do with whether or not they set up their own exchanges. So it's it's doubly uh, uh, irrelevant. Um, uh, so there really is nothing in the legislative history. And and by the way, the fact is, Michael Carbon just said. Well, there's nothing in the legislative history to support our side either. Uh, that's not entirely true. There are some uh, references that make it clear that people assumed that the, the credits and subsidies would be available uh, in all states, regardless of what kind of exchanges they, they had. But um, there are not very many of them uh, because the I issue was just not an issue. But the important point is it, 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 there's not equality here. They, you all, the two Michaels, they have to show that, that Congress actually had this uh, completely counterintuitive and self-destructive purpose in shaping uh, the exchange provisions or else they lose the case. And okay. there isn't anything there. Uh, we're, we've got a few minutes left, so we'd like to open it up for some questions. Um, please wait to be called on. Please wait for a microphone. Uh, and uh, please announce your name and affiliation uh, when the microphone comes to you. Um, We'll start here on the side. Thanks, Kelly. Phil Kerp, an American Commitment. Uh, two questions. I'll be quick for Mr. Weiner and Mr. Lazarus. Mr. Weiner, uh, if hyperbolic subtitle names are dispositive enough to disregard words like established by a state under Section 1311, what purpose could Congress have had in mind when they amended Section 36B to add territorial exchanges, which surely were included in those hyperbolic subtitles already? Uh, and Mr. Lazarus, you said that there are specifics in the legislative history. Can you tell us what those are? Thank you. Uh, sure. Well, um, Justice Scalia, who I imagine is fairly popular in this crowd, says that captions uh, are important. Um, they're not hyperbolic. They tell you what the section is trying to accomplish. And I didn't say that we're trying to disregard the language established by the state. Um, I said, um, and in fact, uh, you, you know, the, the statute uses uh, the word, it defines the word exchange and then uses the word exchange hundreds of times. It uses exchange established under Section 1311, and it uses exchange established by the state under Section 1311. And there's no indication that those are different things, and not treating them as different things doesn't mean you're disallowing or ignoring words of the statute. When you define something, that doesn't mean you have to use the shorthand every time you use the phrase. The statute defines the secretary, secretary to mean the Secretary of Health and Human Services. And it then goes on after doing that to use secretary many times and to use Secretary of Health and Human Services 21 times through the statute. 
Are they different? Are we ignoring the language? No. When you define a term, you can use the shorthand or you can repeat what the definition already says. You know that from your own writing. Sometimes you say ACA. Sometimes you say Affordable Care Act. Uh, you don't have to use the same formulation every time when you've got a definition of a term. So I disagree with the premise, and I think if, you, if I don't accept the premise, uh, then the provisions uh, regarding the um, uh, regarding the territories um, uh, are not are not relevant. Okay, um, I'll just uh, answer the question about uh, places in the record where uh, it appears that the understanding was that the credits would be uh, available in in all states. Um, there aren't very many because. Uh, It could, but it might not. I mean, that's that's the spin that you would like to put on it. But it, but again, that's uh, it, it, it. Is there a single instance in the record that you can point to that shows that credits were intended to be offered in federalist Well, I, I don't. I I, uh, I think Senator Bingaman made uh, some comments on the floor that uh, tend toward that interpretation. Senator, the the CBO uh, scored uh, the bill to uh, uh, assume that. Uh, the subsidies and, and credits would be available everywhere, and yes, they didn't specifically rule out your interpretation, so it is possible, but it's only possible. Um, and um, Senator Hatch, uh, during the closing stages of the debate, uh, railed against the coercive nature of the uh, threatened uh, uh, federal uh, takeover of the exchanges. Um, and I'm quite confident that if it was generally understood uh, that uh, if the federal government took over the exchanges, that then uh, t tax credits and subsidies would be denied citizens of the states. That would have been, he would have certainly railed against that as being uh, co coercive. And again, I just want to stress the point that um, th this was, this is the idea that, that uh, Chuck Schumer and, and company would deliberately uh, write a uh, virulently poisoned pill into their own law. Uh, is in fact, as I d did say, Kelly, uh, is, is so in your face preposterous that the fact that no one was referring to it uh, d during the debate is only is not evidence that it was that that uh, that, that we need to support our case. I, I, our our friends over here really need to show that the record supports them and that there really was this purpose, uh, this stealth threat, which is a contradiction in terms. And I don't think they can do it. Okay, we're, uh, we're running short on time, but we'd like to try and squeeze in a couple other questions, so please keep comments short if you do have them. Uh, right here in the front. Hi, thank you. I'm Sean Callahan. I'm with uh, GW Law. And uh, so thinking about all the ways that a court might uh, be able to dodge this, uh, Mr. Weiner suggested Chevron. I also wonder um, if the case would be uh, ripe. So it seems that perhaps the injury does not happen until uh, the IRS denies the unaffordability credit, and so you know if this were if if this case were kicked, and then uh, you know the IRS maybe has a has an inkling to to you know overstep their authority under the law, then could they simply grant the unaffordability credits to the plaintiffs in these states? And then say, well, no injury accrues, and you know, just a pure taxpayer couldn't challenge the granting of credits, couldn't challenge, you know, letting people pay less tax than they, than they otherwise would owe, 
and sort of insulate this from review. To recap, the, the reason that this is being challenged in court is because these illegal tax credits the IRS is trying to issue end up triggering penalties against employers, penalties against individuals, and denying states the, uh, a choice that Congress gave to states. So in the two lawsuits, Halbig v. Sebelius and Pruitt v. Sebelius, there have been really three injuries claimed uh, that uh, uh, the plaintiffs are from which the plaintiffs are seeking relief. Um, and uh, I, I should probably let Michael Carvin take, uh, take it from there because he's the one who's going to be litigating these issues. Well, right, just to follow up, if, if they give you these uh, uh, tax subsidies and it puts you in a higher echelon where you can, quote, afford insurance, then you're in a position where you're going to have to make a decision by December 31st. So there's no way of this year. So there's no way they can postpone standing beyond that. Indeed, it's worse than that. A couple of the plaintiffs want to buy catastrophic insurance. And to get exempted to be able to buy catastrophic insurance, you need uh, uh, something from the federal government which allows you to do that. And they'll, they have, they'll be eligible for that on October 1st. So they can dodge, but they can't, they can't ever. It, it'll eventually become ripe, even if they take a very um, circumspect view of ripeness, because it'll be, it'll be done by this fall. Time for one more very brief, brief question and a brief answer. Uh, we'll go into the back. Does the, the term uh, state exchanges under section, and I guess this is addressed to the panel, I'm sorry, Jim Duho, I'm unaffiliated, uh, refers to state exchanges uh, under section 1311. That's clearly different from the defined term exchange. Uh, but my question is, is that formulation used in provisions other than, as I understand it, the two benefit provisions, the one, the tax credit, and the other one, eligibility for, uh, um, uh, uh, for Medicaid? Um, is, is that specific, you know, Mr. Weiner referred to the secretary being referred to different ways 21 different times. But is this formulation, state exchange under Section 1311, used elsewhere than under those benefit provisions? It is. And uh, one place where it's used is the statute requires states to maintain, maintain their Medicaid eligibility levels until su such time as the state establishes an exchange under Section 1311, which means they can't cut back eligibility until, they're ex until they've established an exchange and it's up and running. It's the same clause that you see in the tax credit eligibility rules, and it's the same mechanism. It's the same policy lever that Congress is pulling. They're saying to states that we're going to condition something that we have the control to do on you doing something that we don't have uh, the authority to make you do directly. In the case of the uh, exchanges and the tax credits, we don't have the authority to tell you to create an exchange, but we're going to withhold the, the tax credits from your residents until you do. In, uh, on the Medicaid side, they're saying we uh, actually, that we don't have the authority to command you to maintain your Medicaid eligibility levels. But we are going to withhold from you, uh, I'm sorry, again, no, that we don't have the authority to uh, command you to create a health insurance exchange, but we're going to withhold from you the ability to reduce your Medicaid eligibility levels until you do that. It, and, and the penalty there is uh, you would lose federal Medicaid funds if you 
reduce your eligibility levels without creating an exchange first. Which is the basic problem with Rob's argument, right? E even if you accept the word that exchange connotes state-run exchange. Can you speak a little louder? Sure. Um, even if you accept the notion that exchange means state-run exchange in all circumstances, even when it's not run by the state, but run by the secretary of HHS, which is counterintuitive, uh, there's still no explanation for why when the, uh, uh, under Section 1311, even under his formulation, there's two kinds of state-run exchanges, those set up under 1311 f when the states run it, and those set up under 1321 when the Secretary of HHS steps into the breach. So there's just no way to explain when they come back to the tax credit subsidies and they say, run by a state under Section 1311, even if you interpret the word state to mean Secretary Sebelius, it's still under Section 1321, so it doesn't get you anywhere. Did you want to respond to that at all? Yeah, I, I, think, that, um, I, I think that that argument ignores the fact that what's happening in this situation, it's like the Westfall Act, um, the, the uh, a federal employee is sued, uh, certain federal employees, federal government could step in on behalf of the employee and basically be the defendant in the case. Uh, same thing happens here. The uh, federal government steps in for the state and is just substituted in all aspects in which the state uh, would act. That's what 1321 says. It doesn't say it establishes a new kind of exchange. Uh, you have one type of definition runs through the whole statute. I'd just like to clarify one uh, uh, issue that was uh, embedded in uh, the questioner's question, and, and, and that is this business about Medicaid versus the exchange provisions. Um, essentially, uh, the, the Medicaid expansion, there the device to incentivize the states was, was in, in exactly the financial carrot and stick approach that um, my, my friends uh, on the other side of the room um, want to impose and impute to the exchange provisions, but the exchange provisions were completely different. There, the, the uh, mechanism is simply either you do it or we'll do it, and that's a very commonly used mechanism, and it's, it's, it's completely different from what was applied in the Medicaid and, and the Medicaid provisions as uh, Rob said, when there they wanted to use the financial carrot and stick approach, and they knew how to do it, and they knew how to say it, and they did say it. Uh, they didn't want to use it uh, in the exchange uh, provisions, and, and really the difference between uh, us, I think, uh, that, that really is it. Uh, they are arguing that uh, the exchange provisions are really the same in this important regard as the Medicaid provisions, and, and we're, uh, we're arguing that they are not.